turn with me once again uh, to the book of Judges. We've been preaching uh, through the book of Judges. Uh, well, it started at the beginning of this month, and we've made it now into Judges chapter 4 and 5, third message in our series. Today we're going to be looking at a message entitled, Deborah, God's Wonder Woman. The War of 1812 has been called by historians America's Second Fight for Independence. America had only been a nation for about 29 years when the British invaded our land again. And during the conflict, the U.S. forces suffered many costly defeats, including the burning of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. So history tells us that on August the 24th, 1814, about 4,000 British troops marched into D.C. Most of the city's residents had already evacuated, including the First Lady, Dolly Madison, who managed to salvage the copy of the Declaration of Independence and Gilbert Stuart's famous full-length portrait of George Washington. And as Miss Madison fled the city, we are told that the weather began to turn for the worse. A powerful storm swept in from the Atlantic. And actually, a tornado was triggered in the middle of town, and it headed straight down Constitution Avenue toward the British attackers. First-hand survivors who lived through the storm reported that roofs were torn off houses and tossed up into the air like sheets of paper. They said that for two hours, non-stop rain fell in a deluge as if the clouds were dumping out buckets of water. Hurricane-force gusts of wind, in fact, knocked over two British cannons. And listen to this, 30 redcoats were trapped in the rubble when their shelter collapsed under the force of the storm. And yet, historians tell us that had it not been for this freak storm, it is likely that all of D.C. would have been burned to a crisp. In fact, the perfectly timed hurricane spared the White House from being completely destroyed. The British then retreated as quickly as they came. One British admiral, George Cockburn, reportedly snarled at a local woman saying as he left, Great God, madam! Is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? (laughs) She replied, no, sir. This is a special intervention of providence to drive our enemies from our capital. After the war, it's said that President James Madison called all Americans to thanksgiving and prayer. And in a declaration, he said this, quote, No people ought to feel greater obligations to celebrate the goodness of the great disposer of events and of the destiny of nations than the people of the United States. Don't you wish you had a president today who talked like that? Who believed like that? Well, friends, that's just one of many stories which could be told about providential events that shaped this nation. Indeed, as we read our Bibles, we have to admit that the God who sends... The sunshine is the same God who also sends the storm. And that episode that I just retold from American history reminds me of a powerful storm that God sent here in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. He sent a storm to give His people a surprise advantage on the battlefield. 
these storm clouds that blew in happened as one of Israel's most unique judges led the people. As I've already indicated, she was God's wonder woman, as I say. Her name was Deborah. Not only is Deborah the only female judge in this book, but she's the first prophet that God raised up once Israel had settled in the promised land. We have her story and the amazing events recorded in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And really they record the same story but from different angles. In chapter 4, we have the story, we have the narrative. In chapter 5, we have the song or we have the poem which records the events in poetic form. Now, as we have been studying through Judges, you have learned that there's a great theme running through this book, and that is this. God uses unlikely people. He uses unusual methods to bring about an unexpected deliverance. And in today's message, we're going to see how God gave victory to Israel through faith and through obedience, and how I believe that God can do the same for us today, whether individually or whether corporately as a church, or even on a national scale, for a nation who would surrender and submit themselves to this delivering God. I'm talking to you today about Deborah, God's Wonder Woman, and we begin with point number one today. If you're taking notes, notice this. Number one, the sinful misery of God's people. The sinful misery of God's people. Read with me, beginning in Judges chapter 4, first three verses, you will see this played out. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hazorsheth Hagoyim, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, and he, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. By now, we've made it thus far into the book of Judges, and you've probably noticed it's starting to sound like a broken record. We read that after the death of Ehud, a cycle of sin starts over again. Remember, there's six of these Cycles in the book of Judges where the people sin, they fall into slavery, then they cry out to God in supplication and God hears their cry and He gives them salvation, but the people don't learn anything. They fall right back into the same pit that God gets them out of. Sound familiar? Sound like you and me? Sound like our country? Sound like the American church? And so God's people fall back into idolatry and immorality again. And you'll notice that as punishment, the Bible says that the Lord allowed them to be taken captive again. Notice also that with each rebellion, God stiffens the sentence and makes the duration of their bondage longer and longer as they continue to disobey. Remember, when they rebelled the first time, the Bible says in Judges 3 and verse 8, that they were oppressed eight years. And that happened as Othniel was coming on the scene to deliver the people. Then, as we get to the judge Ehud, they fell again into sin, and the Bible says they were enslaved for 18 years. And now, by the time that Deborah rolls on the scene, chapter 4 and verse 3, we read of 20 years under the heavy hand 
of the Canaanites. This time, we read that the Israel's oppressor was a man named Jabin, the king of Canaan, and he had a general underneath him who marshaled his troops. His name was Caesarea. And the Bible says that he boasted an impressive army of 900 chariots, which, by the way, was cutting-edge military technology for this time. Israel, picture this, was not just outnumbered, but they had no chariots, And the Bible actually says they had no weapons to fight against the general with. In fact, if you go over to chapter 5 and verse 8, Deborah describes Israel's weakness in this scene before they were able to throw off the Canaanites' yoke. Look at what verse 8 says. War came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So imagine this. These people have been impressed They've been under the heavy boot of Jabin and Caesarea for 20 years. They've confiscated all their weapons. They have no swords, no spears, no shield. They have no chariots. The situation was hopeless. It was a predicament that Israel faced much like, listen to me, modern America today. You say, preacher, uh, we don't have barbarians at the door. We're not oppressed by China or Germany or Iraq or, or, or the Middle East? Maybe not yet, but I'm telling you today, the United States is just as much in bondage today. It's not a physical necessary bondage, but it's a spiritual bondage. And the one who's the general over it all, having his clamp over the people, is Satan himself. The devil is having a field day in this country today. Friend, I'm telling you, we are enslaved to sin. We are captive to the enemy. And we don't have the resources, we don't have the wherewithal, nor the wisdom to be able to fight him. This is not a war of sticks and stones, spears and swords. The Bible says this is a spiritual war. For we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in the high places. Do you believe me now? Maybe you didn't believe the preacher a few years ago, but after seeing the change and seeing the radical shift take place in our country after the madness of 2020, now it's beginning to settle into the minds of God's people that we're in a fight, that we're outnumbered, that the devil seems to be winning right now, and the church is in retreat. What a message just as applicable today as it was during the time of Judges. You say, how are we enslaved? Well, I can tell you that we're enslaved to drugs. Everybody in here could probably give a testimony of somebody in your family or some relationship that you have with somebody whose life has been destroyed by drugs. According to the CDC, listen to this, on average, there are 75,000 overdose deaths each year in the United States. You think about that. That's about 205 overdoses every single day. And as you drive around town, have you noticed there's more tents popping up? There's more homeless. There's more vagrancy. There's needles on the ground where in places they used to be clean. All of a sudden, there's addicts showing up more and more in our society. Friend, I'm telling you, we're enslaved to drugs. We're also enslaved to pornography. Listen to this. Experts tell us that almost one-third of all internet traffic is porn-related. 30% of all internet traffic. Porn sites, they say, receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 
Wow. Porn is also a global business which in 2018 generated $97 billion with child porn becoming the fastest growing online business. That's why people who say I'm not hurting anybody, uh, it's just me. Uh, they don't understand the industry that's behind this, the victimization of women and children that goes along with it, the slavery. But that means that according to that $97 billion that porn generates more income than all pro sports combined. NBA, MLB, NFL, NHL, etc. Are we in trouble? I'd say so when we don't even know how to teach our kids that there's only two genders, a boy and a girl, a man and a woman. There's not 56 different genders according to our social media. I'd say we're in a mess. I'd say we're enslaved. Not only to drugs, but to porn. We're also enslaved to violence. CBS just reported this a month ago. They said this in their headline, 2021 on track to be America's deadliest year of gun violence in two decades. And they went on to say in this article, there have been 296 mass shootings so far this year, and they define a mass shooting of four or more people killed in an event. And yet... As you listen to the government, as you listen to the politician and the leaders, we have foolish city councils who are defunding their police. And that's no surprise that you're seeing a rise in crime. By the way, most of these shootings are taking place in states and in cities where they have the harshest, strictest gun laws. I don't think the problem is the law-abiding citizen. I think it's the violence in our streets of people who don't know God and never had a dad at home to show them the love of a father. Friend, we are enslaved. We're in a problem here in this country. Enslaved to violence and to pornography and to drugs. We're also enslaved to foolish ideologies. Have you been reading and, and learning about critical race theory? If you haven't, you've been living in a cave. Critical race theory, listen to this, teaches that America is systemically racist and that white privilege is at the root of injustice and inequality. And that teaching has now spread from our liberal universities to many public schools, the military, and even corporations. So now, when the kids go to many public schools across our country, they're learning to hate America. Seems amazing to you and I who grew up in an age where we uh, got up every day at school and pledged allegiance. One nation under God. It ain't that way anymore. It's so bad that, listen to this, the thought police comes after those who disagree. May 17, 2021, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lomere, who was just appointed the commander of the U.S. Space Force, was relieved of duty. You say, what did he do? How did he break the law? He just made comments about Marxism and critical race theory in the military. Here's what he said. He was relieved of his duty because he said that, quote, CRT is harmful for the military, bad for morale, and is rooted in Marxism, and is reverse racism in disguise. Whatever happened to free speech? What is going on in our nation? Friend, I'm telling you, we are in sinful misery just as they were in the book of Judges. 
And we need to wake up and realize our money can't save us. Another stimulus check from the government won't fix the problem. Our technology doesn't have the answers. Our, our, our hope isn't in the White House or the government. Hollywood can't rescue us from the mess that we are in. Our problems aren't just economic. They're not just political. They're not just cultural. They are spiritual. We are in a mess. And the only one who can get us out of this is God Almighty. And it's going to take God's people waking up after our cage has been rattled and after some freedoms have been infringed upon for us to realize, hey, we're in a fight today. It ain't no time to retreat. It ain't no time to give up or get discouraged. The time is now. This is the breaking point. The, the line of no return is right here. The enemy is winning, friend, and I'm tired of it. One of his books... Dr. Roy Zook told a story about a country preacher who came across a, a prison gang who was out cleaning up the roadside. He noticed one prisoner was out there with a sledgehammer busting up rocks. Preacher stopped to talk to this young man about his life and what had led him into this incarceration. Prisoner said this as the preacher asked questions. He said, well, preacher, I don't know much, but I do know this. And then he pointed to that, that pile of rocks that he was smashing. He says, breaking these here stones is like breaking God's law. You can break God's law, but you can't never get rid of it. And every time I break a stone, he said, my chains just feel a little bit heavier. Ain't that true? Hey, you can try and kick God out of every public space, kick Him out of schools, kick Him out of our legislative process, kick Him out of all of our society, but I'm telling you, the law of God is written into the very fabric of the universe. You don't break God's law, you break yourself upon God's law as you disobey it, and that's the problem and the paradigm that we are in today. We need an awakening. We need a deliverer. We need God. So that's the sinful misery of God's people. Do you believe me today, church? But I want you to see there's some hope in this picture. Don't get down on the statistics and the bad news. I want you to notice number two today, the spiritual ministry of God's prophetess. Thank God there was a remnant. There was somebody faithful in Israel who knew how to get a hold of God. Her name was Deborah. And by the way, that name Deborah means honeybee. That's interesting because as you know, bees have a dual nature, don't they? They're industrious, they're intelligent, they're creatures who produce something that we all love on a hot buttery biscuit. Amen? That honey's good. But if you get a hive of bees riled up and you go try and rob them, I'm telling you, they're going to come after you with a painful thousand stings. And Deborah is like that. She has both of these qualities. She's tender... But man, is she tough at the same time. Notice her spiritual ministry. What this entailed, first off, she had a ministry of instruction. A ministry of instruction. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, if you are wondering, in the Old Testament, there were three women who were called a prophetess. 
There was Miriam in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20. We read of her. There's also a lady in 2 Kings 22 by the name of Hulda. She lived during the time of King Josiah. And, of course, there's Deborah here, Judges 4 and 5. If you go to the New Testament, there were also a couple of women featured with this gift. There was Anna. Remember her, the old woman who saw baby Jesus at the temple in Luke chapter 2? And then there are the four daughters of Philip, which are mentioned in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Now, the Bible says that Deborah was a prophetess. She had the gift of declaring the Word of God to the people of God. And as a judge, the Bible says that she would hear people's problems. She would arbitrate over disputes. She would render a verdict. She would give counsel. And that's why I say she had a ministry of instruction. And I believe that Deborah is interesting because here is a shining example that God gives the same spiritual gift to men as He does to women. There's a long-standing myth in the church that somehow women play second fiddle to the men. And that's obviously not true. Look at the great ministry that God gave this woman. Men, if we're honest, if God were to take all the women out of the church, we would be in a fix, wouldn't we? But the women are often able to work circles around the men. I know my wife can multitask, and I can just keep my mind barely on one thing at a time. But women are usually the first to volunteer. They they lead in worship. They teach with great skill. They sacrifice. They do the dirty work. And thank God for the Debras in the local church who will step up and serve. So she had a ministry of instruction. Then notice this about this wonder woman. She had a ministry of inspiration. A ministry of inspiration. Look at what verse 6 says. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, and with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Sound like a courageous warrior to you or not? Pull up your skirt and be a man, Barak. And she said, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went with him. Now Deborah, I see, is significant in another way in this battle. She encouraged a warrior, Barak, to man up and fight against the king of Canaan and his general Caesarea. You get the sense as you read this passage, do you not, that Barak is fearful of the enemy's superior numbers. They had an army of 900 chariots. I mean, these guys ate nails and spit them out for breakfast. They were big, bad bullies on the block there in the Middle East. They had no weapons in Israel. They had no chariots. How were they going to defeat a superior enemy? And Barak is kind of shaking in his sandals when Deborah comes to him and says, Look, it's time for you to gather an army. God says, I'm fighting for my people. Listen to the Word of God. 
Notice how shrewd she was in her approach. She recognized, this woman of faith recognized, that leading men into battle was a job for a man. She didn't overstep her boundaries, but she encouraged this man by giving him a promise from the Word of God. God will go with you, Barak. Fight and have some faith. Reminded me, this summer I've been reading an excellent book on the life of Billy Graham. And in that book, the author talks about a woman who had a Deborah kind of ministry. And she, she had that impact on Billy Graham. This lady's name was Pearl Good. There she is pictured above on the screen. She actually became a prayer warrior for Billy Graham's ministry. Here's a little bit about her. It said that Miss Good would organize teams of people to pray nonstop for Billy Graham and his teams as they were having the Crusades. No wonder then that Billy's ministry had such success and touched millions of souls over the years around the world because this woman had a Deborah-type ministry behind the scenes praying, tearing down spiritual strongholds, asking God to bless the man of God that he might speak with power and authority. And this little diminutive lady, listen to what was said of her in her funeral in 1994. Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, paid her tribute when she stood up, and here's what she said about this little woman that almost nobody around the world knew about except heaven. She said this, Here lies the mortal remains of much of the secret of Bill's ministry. You talk about a ministry of inspiration. Somebody who would lift up the arms of a mighty man like Billy Graham because, hey, the best man is still a man at best. And he's weak and, and he needs the help of God's people. But as you read this passage, you understand that I think Barack in this moment suffered from the same ailment that a lot of men in church suffer from. Listen to me, guys. And that is this. Fully assuming the role of a spiritual leader. Barak had his doubts. But yet, he was God's man at a critical time. And he never would have attempted great things for God had Deborah not encouraged him to do so. He had weak faith, but friend, isn't it better to have a little faith in a big God than big faith in a little God? That's where God began with Barak, and that's where Deborah started to inspire him to believe bigger, get a big view of God, don't look at the numbers, don't listen at what the enemy is saying, listen to the mouthpiece of God. And once again, I just have to step back and I have to thank God for the Deborahs here at Liberty Baptist Church. Thank God for the faithful women who will have a Deborah-like ministry behind the scenes, who will pray for their husband, encourage their husband, lift up their man, pray for the deacons, pray for the pastor. For, sir, if you have a godly wife, thank God for her. She's a blessing. She'll inspire you. She'll give you strength that you needed at a time when you were low. I thank God that I've got a Wonder Woman at home who will lift me up, pray for me, speak words of encouragement to me, not criticize me, not run me down, but be an ass and a blessing to my life. Thank God for the Debras in the local church because we couldn't do it without them. Thank God for the women of faith who have, through the eyes of faith, the way to see God's will and God's way and won't let people forget about it. Amen? How many of you saw that picture that I put up the other day of my Wonder Woman catching that snake at home? 
Do you see that? Many of you oohed and odd and your skin crawled a little bit. Let me tell you a little story on that. We have a neighbor who has a chicken coop, and she called Caitlin, and she said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got a big old snake down here in my chicken coop. And Caitlin said, hold on, I'll be right down there in a minute. <laughs> and she channeled her inner Steve Irwin and went out there and, and wrangled that thing. And uh, you think I'm going to cross her? I don't think so. Hey, friend, listen to me. She's stronger than she looks. Right? Thank God for a mighty woman who will stiffen the spine of a man and make me want to be a better man. That's who Deborah was. She had a ministry of instruction and a ministry of inspiration. But then she also noticed this, verse 9, a ministry of insight. Did you read what it said in verse 9 real carefully? The Bible says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead for your glory, but for the glory of the Lord. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Now remember, as a prophetess, Deborah's ministry was not only foretelling, that is declaring the word of God, but also foretelling, which is predicting the future with a 100% accuracy. Don't miss her prediction here in verse 9. Because of Barak's wavering faith, God is going to give the honor of taking down Caesarea, the general, to a woman. And as we read this, we think it's going to be Deborah. But let me remind you, God is full of surprises. So, a ministry of insight, ministry of instruction, ministry of inspiration. That's the spiritual ministry of the prophetess. But then notice this, number three. Here's the climax of this scene. Number three, notice this. The surprising miracle of God's providence. Sinful misery, special ministry, surprising miracle. So far, notice this. We've seen the woman that God chose, the warrior that God called, and now I want you to see the wonder that God caused. There's two incredible ways that God providentially worked to give Israel victory in this important battle. Read with me verse 12 through 14 real quick. The Bible says, When Caesarea was told that Barak, the son of Abinoham, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth, Hagoyim, to the rivers of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now notice this. God ordered the rock through the prophetess Deborah to lead his troops down from the safety of the mountain. He's got his men in the high ground. They're hiding, waiting at Mount Tabor. They're in the safe place. But God says, I want you to take your men from the high place, from the mountain, take them down to the open plains. Now, that's where the flat land is, and that's where Caesarea's chariots had the advantage and could mow down the infantry with ease. This is not a good strategy if you are a military man and you're looking at this practically. You have no weapons to fight. Why would you put yourself in a vulnerable situation when Caesarea can come along and mow you down? I think we'll just stay up here in the mountains, right? But when Caesarea heard about this tactical blunder, I, I bet he was licking his chops thinking this is going to be a bloodbath. He found out where Israel was hiding. But Barak, we are told, obeyed the word of the Lord anyway. 
And he put his troops in this vulnerable position. He found his courage. And it is this act of trust in the Word of God that gets Barak's name inducted into the Hall of Faith. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, there is Barak's name recorded in the Hall of Faith. But look what the Bible says. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, verse 14, with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Haggaiim. And all the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the sword. And not a man was left. Do you see what happened here? This move didn't make sense militarily. But what Barak did is he exercised faith in the Word of God. God said, I'm going before you. God said, I'm going to fight for my people. And friend, that's the essence of faith. Trusting God's strength in our weakness. And mark it down. Listen to me. God always responds to weakness, obedience, and faith. And this is where the battle we are told, takes a critical turn because God shows up in a providential, amazing way to turn the tide in battle. And friend, listen to me. When we trust God, God takes us from being an underdog to being an overcomer. Because how many of you know, God doesn't fight by the conventional rules of war. When God enters the picture, you can throw the rule book out. You can forget about the odds. The expert testimony doesn't count when God's in the mix because He's an army of one. And notice what happens here in this text. Chapter 4 doesn't tell us really how God turned the tide in battle for Israel. But if you go over to chapter 5 and read the words of the song, notice what this text says. Chapter 5 Verses 4 and 5, we get the other side of the story. The Bible says, verse 4, The Lord, when He went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. Now you know why I mentioned that storm in the beginning of the message. Verse 5, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now drop down to verse 20 and read this. The Bible says, from heaven the stars fought. You just thought Star Wars was George Lucas' idea. And from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, march on my soul with Do you see what happened here? Just at the precise moment, God opened up the windows. He poured out what the country folk that I grew up with called a toad frog strangler. You talk about a gully washer. I mean, God opened up the windows of heaven and poured down 55-gallon drums of water on top of Caesarea. And you know what that did in a dry and thirsty land? It turned them open plains into a mud hole. And if you've ever been mudding before, you know you're going to get stuck up to your nose in some of that muck. And that's exactly what happened to Caesarea and his men. He didn't have enough horsepower to pull the chariots out of the mud hole. 
the good King James Bible says in chapter 5 that actually the mountains melted. You know what that means? God caused a mudslide to swallow up Caesar and his men and all that Barak and his men had to do was walk in there, pick up the swords and the spears and finish them off. God went to battle for His people. Notice verse 20, the Bible says that God even caused the stars to fight against us there. Did you read that? In other words, what the Bible is saying is that God moved heaven and earth. You talk about fixing a fight. God rigged this thing in such a way that there was no way that Caesarea and his 900 chariots could win on this day. I'm telling you, God don't play by the rules of man. God don't listen to the critics. God doesn't take his advice from the philosophies of man. I think I might just preach a little bit today. I'm telling you, man proposes, but my God disposes. I'm here today to say that I believe this is the reverse of Romans 8.28. You know what Romans 8.28 says? All things work together for good to them that love Him and are called according to His purpose. But you know there's a reverse side to that too. And here it is in chapter 5. As we read about Caesarea, the Bible says that even the stars of heaven were arrayed against Him. What that means is the reverse of Romans 8.28 that all things work for bad to those who are opposed to God. Hey, sin can't win and faith can't fail. I would hate to be the man or the woman who opposed the hand of my God. You see, he did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He did it with Ahab and with Herod. All of those people found out that their arms was too short to box with my God. You see, God moves Behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he's behind. And we need to notice here that the hand of God is against the man whose hand is against God. I'll say that again. The hand of God is against the man whose hand is against God. You need to ask yourself today, what side of the battle are you on? Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. Are you on Team Jesus or are you on the devil's crowd? Hey, you can change sides today. You can switch over. You can change your direction and your destiny and say, I'll serve the Lord Jesus Christ today and be on the winning side. Bible says in Psalm 20 and verse 7, Some trust in horses and others in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's my God. Hey, as you look at the battle, friend, don't get discouraged by the scoreboard. Don't look at just what you can see with your earthly eyes. Remember, God is fighting. God is for you. God is moving behind the scenes. And it ain't over till my God says it's over. DeWitt Talmadge, the 19th century clergyman, wrote these words. He said this, Despots may plan and armies may march. And the Congress of Nations may seem to think they are adjusting all the affairs of the world, but the mighty men of the earth are only dust in the chariot wheels of God's providence. All the strong men who've wore crowns and commanded armies think that they're big and bad and they poke out your chest in pride, but God looks down on them and says, You're nothing but dust. My goodness. God did this by turning the adversary's strength into a weakness. The very thing that the enemy thought was going to give him victory, God routed it in such a way that the strength of the enemy became a liability. 
You can't fight when you're neck deep in a mud hole. Chariots won't do you any good. But then God also did something else. He turned an ally's weakness into a strength. Notice what the rest of the text says. But Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Hebor the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple. I told you the book of Judges was rated R. Then she went swiftly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while it was laying fast asleep from weariness, and so he died. And behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man of whom you are seeking. Verse 23, So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. The second way that God got victory in this situation is through the bold actions of a little housewife. The Bible says that her name was J.L. You know what that name actually means? Nobody would name their daughter this today, by the way. The name J.L., this housewife that we meet here, her name means mountain goat. <laughs> mountain goat. And the Bible says that as Caesarea fled from the battlefield, that he ran into the tent of a man whom he had made an alliance with. The man's name was Heber. Heber wasn't home, but his wife was. And through deception, she allowed Caesarea to take refuge in the tent. And the Bible doesn't even really explain her motivations. But here's what I think. This is really kind of a bloody story. It's violent. It's deceptive. And you say, where's God in all this? But notice this. This woman also witnessed the power of the storm that day. This woman also knew of the cruelty of the Canaanites and of Caesarea. And I think as she witnessed all of that taking place that day, the storm, and when she saw the enemy running, that she decided, like Rahab centuries before, that she was going to cast her lot with God's people. Right? And she decided to take action. She wasn't bashful about it. Neither J.L. nor Caesarea, listen to this, knew about Deborah's prophecy. This little housewife lady, she didn't know that the word of the Lord had already been spoken over her life before that day arrived and before the enemy came to her tent. But I want you to notice... God fulfilled His Word right down to the gnat's whisker. That's how accurate my God is. And think about God, how, how amazing this is. God used a, the, a little Bedouin lady named Mountain Goat to kill a powerful warlord of her day. Just as God's Word said it would happen, this ought to give you and me confidence today. Listen, friend, God is in control. He uses unlikely people. He uses unusual circumstances to bring about His desired plan. I don't know if you're listening to me today. I said, are you feeling outnumbered and overwhelmed today like
like Israel was in this moment. The devil may have you surrounded and you may be convinced, I can't win, I can't get out of this pit, I can't conquer this addiction, I have no answers. You may begin to believe what the scoreboard says in your life. Listen, as Christians and as Americans, we may feel hopeless as we look upon our nation descending into the darkness. We don't like what we're seeing. We feel helpless as we notice our nation going into sin and bondage. But I want you to keep in mind today from Judges 4 and 5 that my God specializes in hopeless. My God knows broken beyond repair. My God comes to the aid of the defeated and those who need Him more. More than ever, God's people, let me remind you, had been in a situation just like this before at the Red Sea with the Pharaoh bearing down upon him and nothing but water ahead. My God rolled a red carpet out at the Red Sea and made a way where there was no way. Uh, They were like this friend in a Philippian jail when Paul and Silas were trapped in there and it looked like their ministry was over and there was no way out. God sent an earthquake and God broke the chains. Let me remind you they were at this place in Gibeon one day when Joshua and his men looked out on the army and they said, daylight's running out. What are we going to do, Joshua? Joshua prayed and the Bible says that God stopped the sun in its course. Let me remind you God's people had been here before in a lion's den, in a fiery furnace, in a storm-tossed boat on a Saturday evening with Jesus still in the tomb with no hope and no answers and no encouragement. My God and His people had been here before, but I'm reminding you it ain't over till God says it's over. And when your back's against the wall and the situation's hopeless and you're crying out for God to do something in your life, that's when you know as He comes through and meets the need, I can't take credit for it. I can't boast in it. All the glory, all the praise has to go to one. It's the uh, commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. You see, when we're in that situation, God wants us to learn something when He delivers. That He's our strength in that moment of weakness. That He's our miracle in the middle of that mess. That He's our deliverance in that darkness. You see what God does is He takes underdogs and He makes them into overcomers. That's what faith will do. That's what weakness will do. That's what obedience will do. You think God could do this in our country today? The Bible says Psalm 33 Blessed is the nation whose Lord is God. Imagine what God could do if God's people got a hold of this and started praying and started fighting and started realizing the dire mess that we're in. How God could turn a nation around. Hey, He did it for Israel. He did it for Nineveh. He can do it in our day. I'm gullible enough to believe that my God is still a restoring God. He's still a miracle sending God. He's still a God who can defeat the enemy, drive back the darkness, and stand on the day of deliverance. God knows how to bring deliverance at a disadvantage. And isn't that a wonderful picture of the gospel, by the way? Deliverance at a disadvantage. You see, because I remember the story that Satan had a great weapon. It wasn't 900 chariots. His great weapon was death. 
Death had reigned over all men since the days of Adam. And yet there was one who rose up to be the deliverer of all mankind. His name wasn't Barak, but his name was Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross and he took the mightiest blow from the devil's greatest weapon, that is death, and he laid in the ground. But my God didn't stay dead. He got up in power and in victory on that third day. As the stone rolled away, he came out and showed all the world that he is who he said he was. He was God. He was God's Son. He was the sinner's Savior. He was the resurrection and the life. He's mighty. He's strong. He's graceful and powerful. And he took this great weapon that was over all of humanity and He turned that disadvantage into a blessing for God's people so that now when I stand at death's door I can say because He lives I will live also. Boo devil, you lost because my King took your weapon and defeated you. Do you know Him today? Hey, is He your Savior today? Our musicians are coming. We're getting ready for a time of invitation. Maybe you're in a battle. You're getting your tail handed to you. Hey, I know a God who can get victory. I know a God who can deliver you. I know a God of power who can break the chains. Who can throw off the evil spirits and the oppressors that are taunting you. I know a God who can save anybody if they'll come to Him in obedience and faith and ask Jesus to be the Lord of their life. He'll do it.